I haven't had this much fun since I was at a nudist colony and accidentally backed into a meat thermometer. What's going on over there? Welcome to Truth Battle. I'm Rex Smith here, sheeple. Yeah, he's an internet conspiracy guy. He is nuttier than a squirrel turd. <laughs> I'm going to be telling you the truth you won't get from the fake news Hollywood elites with their black helicopter chemtrails from deep state FEMA camps that hide Hillary's emails about Benghazi, written in the ancient tongue of the snake people, the Illuminati. They take supple Christian men off the street and force them in the Canaanite ritual gay sex in coffins while they dance naked, giving each other lizard man courtesy reach-arounds as a sacrifice to the online meme Momo. I'm Rex Smith. Stay awake and stay vigilant. What a load of balloon juice. Hey, I heard that. Rex Smith speaks the truth, my friend. He talks about the stuff that you and the lamestream media want to try and cover up. Some audio from Netflix's The Pentaveret. The series is the usual Mike Myers, vulgar, tongue-in-cheek, sophomore comedy. I'm being tongue-in-cheek too, as we'll be dealing with loads of conspiracy theories in this eternal now. If you can't laugh at yourself, then the Archons are finger-patting your huevos and asking you to cough out your individuality. You're in a state of self-important, lifeless delirium, as we see so much in today's culture. A little bit about myself. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with two life-size companion dolls. I also do up-close sex magic. I both read and masturbate to tarot. The truth is serious, even as it's still kind of funny. Quoting Gordon White, quoting Jimmy Dore, we're at that state in culture where we shouldn't even call them conspiracy theories, but spoiler alerts. Whether it's facts catching up to history, projection, some Mandela effect fart, or the veil simply ripping apart as more awakened doesn't matter. Don't worry too much. Sit back with the indifference of Diogenes or the detachment of Carper Crates. The game isn't won in the, quote, spoiler alerts arena, but how they assist in your inward journey. What is the world, then? An illusion. One which we can either submit to, as most do, or transcend. What is it to transcend? To recognize nothing is true and everything is permitted. As Joseph Campbell said, I don't know what being is, and I don't know what consciousness is, but I do know what bliss is, that deep sense of being present, of doing what you absolutely must do to be yourself. If you can hang on to that, you are on the edge of the transcendent already. And as the Gnostic sage Theodotus said, what makes us free is the gnosis of who we were, of what we have become, of where we were, of where rain we have been cast, of where to we are hastening, of what we are being freed, of what birth really is, of what rebirth really is. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake, and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. In between those two pillars of reality knowledge and self-knowledge, 
bliss and gnosis. Have a sense of humor and keep tearing the veils down of those, quote, spoiler alerts. Let the Hylix lose their laughter. Let the world burn with the anger of its own self-importance. If people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. Just as important, come and stay at the virtual Alexandria. In a moment, we'll start collecting clues as to the whys, the whats, and the wheres. We will not end the nightmare. We'll only explain it. Because this is the Aeon Bytenostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning, a crash course in cult, culture, and conspiracy, a virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week, I, your host, Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining crazy diamond that should be seen and can ignite the universe with so much wonder. I think I understand. It's not about being alone or about being in love. It's about the things you survived. As it's written, the world breaks everyone and afterward, some are strong at the broken places. Ready for some amazing, quote, spoiler alerts? If you hadn't noticed, the theme of uncovering the spiritual and conspiratorial realities of North America has been prevalent in 2022. From the Astronosis Conference to our interview with Recluse, from the documentary Secrets of Sasquatch to Sean Stone's ideas on modern archons, it's obvious as the Empire shifts away from this continent that we release its suppressed spirits and allow dream time to return. America was built by bailing out winners, by rigging a nation of the winners, for the winners, by the winners. We'll be doing just that now, as I have the honor of hosting Mark Palmer, host of My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Get ready for some intense research on Skull and Bones, Occult New England, American Saturn, and much more. Damn, I feel Mark is just getting warmed up, and his journey as a researcher is going to be rewarding for both him and us looking for those, quote, spoiler alerts. Dude is going places, and so will we during a fantastic interview. Sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here. Let's continue exposing Yaldibaldi's empire, including their Karens and Katamites in the establishment. Stop them once and for all in their wicked fantasies of giving us a utopia, where we will own nothing and be happy, eat bugs and live in pods and whatnot. They will do it by bypassing the sort of rational side of man and appealing to his uh, subconscious and his uh, deeper emotions and so making him actually love his slavery. I mean, I think this is the danger, that actually people may be in some ways happy under the new 
uh, regime. You gotta tell them, silent breed is people! Ever heard of the mouse utopia experiment in the 60s? Scientist John Calhoun created just that, a contained and packed commune of 3,000 mice with small but safe condos and an endless food supply. Sounds great, right? The mice didn't have to do shit but eat, sleep, and procreate for years. And shit, too. Guess what happened to this rodent's ideal paradise? Gradually, the male mice lost interest in female mice and any healthy activities in general. The female mice overcompensated for this, becoming aggressive to the point of being dangerous and ignoring their own offspring. Some mice became sociopathic and narcissistic loners, constantly grooming themselves in a state of deep anxiety. Eventually, the mouse utopia devolved into a mixture of catatonic mice and unpredictably violent mice, collapsing into a Mad Max scenario. Spoiler alert, and I'm using the term in its original meaning, and a conspiracy theory. The mice became extinct in the end. The same results happened when the experiment was repeated with rats. Please disperse! Nothing to see here, please! That's what the powers and principalities want for us. Don't you see? A society without meaning or mystery, without purpose or principles, snuffs out any spark of productivity or even the will to exist. That's why it's so important to follow your bliss and experience that gnosis, to keep an eye on the, quote, spoiler alerts out there. You are amazing and so full of potential, so don't let them take that away from you with some Schwab or Soviet or millennial utopia. Don't let them. Don't be like the meat sacks out there who are willingly handing their rights and freedoms, their very own souls to that wickedness in high places. As Alan Moore wrote, Since mankind's dawn, a handful of oppressors have accepted the responsibility over our lives that we should have accepted for ourselves. By doing so, they took our power. By doing nothing, we gave it away. We've seen where their way leads, through camps and wars, towards the slaughterhouse. And the best part, zero resistance. People stay in their pots, happier than pigs in shit quietly yearning for what you don't have while dreading losing what you do. For 99.9% .9 of your race, that is the definition of reality. Desire and fear, baby. Don't worry about the pain you might endure by taking a risk, lifting the veil of those spoiler alerts. As Beth Martins wrote, when you face the horror of the universe, you don't lose your innocence, but your ignorance. Your innocence is your divine spark, and it can't be taken away, only suppressed if you give the Archons permission. Going back to Gordon, he suggests in the same article these simple steps to overcome the Empire's dark enchantments, or when you really start losing your ignorance. He calls it magic reframing 
and here they are. 1. Seek refuge in gratitude. 2. Always be on the side of life. Always. 3. Become the change. Become peace and optimism. 4. Prepare what you can. 5. Do the good that you know. 6. Turn a friendly face to the unconscious. I used to think it was awful that life was so unfair. Then I thought, wouldn't it be much worse if life were fair and all the terrible things that happen to us come because we actually deserve them? So now I take great comfort in the general hostility and unfairness of the universe. Good advice. I say write your own gospel and live your own myth. Know yourself. Go inward. Follow your bliss and embrace that gnosis like Theodotus. And you'll be fine. And you'll be even finer with our interview with Mark. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window Open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Mark Palmer. Mark, how are you doing today? And thanks for finally coming on the show. What a pleasure. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, you've been on my show twice, so I guess it is long overdue, and I have something really interesting to bring and present here in the virtual Alexandria. Awesome. And with us, too. Well, uh, Vance wasn't well. He stayed back at the hotel. So they sent Nathan Lee as a surrogate co-host. He's going to find out where you fans really stand. Nate, how are you? Um, I'm doing super califragilistic, excellent to lo- something lotion. I don't know. It rubs the lotion on the awesome. Uh, yeah, we're, gonna, we're already starting off well. I'm super excited. Um, <laughs> I'm a, Just for the audience, uh, Miguel and Mark are excellent people. And I'm really excited to um, 
me, uh, the wingman, and shout out to Vance, the sexy, sexy moon dog. Uh, we we miss you, but I'm I, I will do my best. So uh, thanks for uh, well, yeah. Hi. As Ozzy Osbourne sang, "Bark at the moon, bark at the moon dog." That's all you can do. So awesome. Well, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're the host of the podcast, or just tell us how you tell us about your red pill adventure, or as I like to say sometimes, Mark, uh, red pill suppository, because we all don't get it. Sometimes you need that uh, that red pill to go up your rectums of reality and slowly dissolve through time, like me. Yeah. Well, I'm used to uh, whooping from my dad, so it hurt when it went in that red pill suppository, but it was well worth it. So I'm Mark. Mystic Mark is what I call myself on My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. That's a podcast that I do, and I've always been a little mystical. I've always been a little weird, so my family's always thought I was a little crazy. And uh, this story with Skull and Bones, it's not something that I pulled out of my sleeve and said, oh, let me pull a podcast rabbit. and show everybody what i've studied i've actually run into this organization in a couple different capacities uh as a student on a neighboring campus i found myself fascinated with the strange architecture the egyptian revival the gothic revival towers and all of these strange energies that are at play in the city of new haven and it's not a big city it's it's a fairly small city and I grew up nearby, found out that Skull and Bones was realer than YouTube videos suggested. And, uh, and you know, at that time in my life, I was really a novice. I had Conspiracy 101, maybe from a couple like Loose Change and a couple documentaries here and there, Zeitgeist, things like that. But I, I didn't really understand the full scope of conspiracy theory and secret societies until I met someone who I now call my mentor, uh, a gentleman named Amos, who moved from Arizona to Connecticut, and we ran into each other in a we really weird place, uh, an ancient burying ground, which is now a public park. And I was there smoking a joint with uh, a T-shirt on that had Sitting Bull's face on it. And Amos walked up to me and said, oh, little bro, what are you doing with that shirt on? And that started our our conversation and and our friendship. And I've known him for about eight years. And and he he taught me about not only the grave robbery and and desecration of Geronimo's remains, but he taught me about Native American spirituality and why he would travel all the way from Arizona to New Haven on a spiritual pilgrimage to connect with Geronimo. And, And he sacrificed a lot. He was homeless when I met him. He now has a house. Uh, he now has a job. But this was very much a, a spiritual pilgrimage. And as somebody at that time in my life who was, you know, foolishly in college, putting this big debt over my head that I knew I wasn't going to be able to pay off, uh, I said, I said, you know what, Amos, you're you're a better teacher than anyone else I've met in this school. He, you know, wasn't even a part of the school. And uh, yeah, a couple couple months later i ended up dropping out and that went, that's what started my synchromystic journey and eventually it led to podcasting and i didn't even know about podcasting back then but it led to podcasting in this really serendipitous way and i've told that story a lot on my show and 
folks who are fans of the Tinfoil Hat podcast know that I work for Sam Tripoli, and that was a big part of the synchronicity because I was a big fan of Aeon Byte, Tinfoil Hat, Grimerica Show, Higher Side Chats. I'm listening to all these podcasts, and then all of a sudden I get like a claw machine <laughs> pulled out of obscurity and brought into this world. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a blessing, and I, I give all credit to Sam Tripoli, but I will reassure anyone who's suspicious I'm as real as it gets. I've been looking into this stuff since high school, since college. And that's not long considering I'm only 27, but I found a lot. And I think when you learn how to trust your senses, your intuition, uh, the universe is just putting puzzle pieces in front of you to add to your collection. And we all have a bunch of puzzle pieces with us. And that's the beauty of these podcasts is we get to sit here at at this wide open table and, and put the pieces together. So I have a, a couple things prepared, but if you'd like, you know, I can tell you a little bit more about my experiences in New Haven. They're, they're sort of uh, strange and synchronistic. Well, I have a few uh, questions before we really get our, our hands dirty with this stuff. And yes, Sam's a great guy. Um, I think this is the golden age of podcasting and it's just exploding. I was looking at some stats today and it's doubled in 2022. Why? Because it's unregulated. It's like, you know, the faucet is out. And yes, you know, you get dings in YouTube or Spotify here and there. Uh, but for for the most part, it's the Wild West. And this is this shows... What happens when you let this information just out there? Because it's really benefited people. Uh, and it's really made uh, incredible conversation, niches. I mean, for anything, whether you're into sports, true crime, knitting, grammar, or like I said, alternative history, it's a great time. And it's because, uh, yeah, the 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 faucet, the dam has broken. Everybody has an RSS feed. It's like blogging was 10, 15 years ago in another golden age of the internet when people were just, everybody was in each other's blogs and so much information was out. So yeah, let's definitely keep the vibe. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about yourself. When did you decide as the uh, Buffalo Springfield song goes, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Was there a I mean, a lot for a lot of people, it's 9-11, the 2008 crash, the Iraqi war. There's always something that uh, maybe they said, oh, shit. Uh, the, the conventional story ain't right. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yes, that's a great question. So the 9-11 event definitely hit close because I'm from Connecticut. You know, as you know, New Haven, Skull and Bones, Connecticut, we're all very close to new york city so that was that was a big event i was very young i have a extremely sharp memory of that day like many people and i was only in first grade so it left an impression on me and it definitely made me see the world in a fast way you know because at that age you're not generally thinking about countries in the middle east right so I started thinking about this stuff and I got really nationalistic. I got really passionate. My grandparents were conservative on both sides of my family and my parents were just blue collar working hard. So to me, I'm like, oh God, falling for all this programming. And it wasn't until like middle school and high school when that rebellious edge started to really blossom that I started to question like, geez, like 
these guys are just getting drunk and rowdy around a, a fire and talking crap about these guys that they don't even know the first thing about, you know? So that the, the, you know, outward racism of that whole time really affected me and I understood it, you know, it, it makes sense, but that wasn't really my wake up, believe it or not. It's a little more cliche than that. Cannabis was my wake up and it, it's, it's true you know, growing up with conservative grandparents and also very Catholic grandparents, my horizons were not as broad as they could have been. And I was always fascinated with history, animals, anything I could learn about. So cannabis really broadened my horizons. And I've always described it as uh, like wiping the slate clean. And I was able to see the world with uh, new eyes. And I really started to understand my intuition. and why I was drawn to certain books and I was never the best reader as in, you know, finishing a book front to back, but I always had a knack for skimming and finding exactly what I needed. And that became addicting. And I just kept buying more and more books. And uh, yeah, so somewhere between smoking weed and reading uh, several different books like Mark Booth's Secret History of the World, Carlos Castaneda and all of his books, The Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner. Uh, I dropped out of college and realized that if I became a Chinese food delivery guy, I could read all of these books in between deliveries and get paid at that. So instead of paying to learn, I started to, to learn how to get paid to learn. And that's where my synchromistic intuition sort of journey really started. And it, it zigged and zagged and got me in rough patches. I lived in a fraternity house for a couple months, and that was a real slog. I mean, nobody cleaned up in that place and I was sleeping on the couch. So, yeah. Uh, but that fraternity happened to have a strange connection to Skull and Bones, uh, not through direct lineage of any sort, but just, you know, two fraternities in the same college town are going to bump up against each other every now and then. And, and one of our rituals uh, through initiation, this is a very slipshod fraternity. I wasn't even a student at the school, so I don't know what that says about the fraternity, but we we were led blindfolded through the streets of New Haven, and uh, the blindfold was taken off as we stood in front of the tomb. So, you know, this is one of the more shocking things because I had learned all about the tomb and Geronimo, and next thing I know, my buddies are like, pseudo initiating me in this drinking cult and it has something to do with skull and bones. And I call it a drinking cult because all they ever did was drink. I mean, it's all it was is a fraternity. People smoked weed, sure, but nobody really was interested in any of this stuff we're discussing here, which was like disappointing. The, like the stone cutters in the Simpsons, the <laughs> right. on Wednesday, drinking on Thursday. Exactly. Thing. And we had, we even had like a Jolly Roger skull and bones flag in the, the house as like a, a souvenir from probably some hijinks that went down. And that was the extent of that. But during that time, I had really like a, a, a beautiful landing pad for all these psychedelic experiences. Cause when you're living somewhere where there's no parental guidance, you, you can get away with a lot. And uh, this house was <laughs> on 322 Blake Street, which, you know, 322, we all know uh, that was always the oddest thing about the fraternity. But I would do 
various things, mushrooms, acid at various times. And one of those times I went up to a mountain. It's really not a mountain if you're out west, but out here it's a mountain. It's more like a hill. Nathan knows what I'm talking about. Nathan knows what I'm talking about. So I go up to this place, Lee. West Rock, <laughs> and I I meditate Thank you, in though. a really, really deep, 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 deep trance. And I come across a deer. And this deer is five feet away from me, you know? And I don't know how I got from your question to this experience, but something was pulling me to understand the nature of consciousness, reality, but in a localized way. Because this spot on the mountain, little did I know then, had a very sacred and uh, strange significance considering what I've learned now about Skull and Bones, New Haven, and the founding of the New Haven Colony. The place that I was tripping acid was the very same place where the regicide judges fled after they king, king, uh, killed King Charles II. Uh, not only that, but that same West Rock Mountain is a part of a mountain chain that was considered sacred to the Quinnipiac, whose name gave its way to the river and the state. Connecticut is a variation of Quinnipiac. So we have this interesting thing that happens in hindsight where the life that I was leading was pulling me through these strange situations that I could really only understand in hindsight. And another example of that uh, outside of today's example, because today's St. John the Baptist Day, and I don't know if you picked that on purpose, Miguel, but that is a very significant uh, date for this whole conversation because the New Haven colony, they laid their claim on Saint on John Cabot, John Cabot, right? John Cabot allegedly found, according to the British, found New England on St. John the Baptist Day and, and basically made the, the discovery. So they based their land rights and their property deeds on this claim. And they also founded the city of New Haven on St. John the Baptist Day. So there's this rhyming going on with St. John the Baptist Day. And of course, that's the day we're talking here. Well, another example of this is Sometime after I was a delivery driver, sometime after I was in that fraternity, a friend of mine from that fraternity got me a job in a bakery. And this bakery had all sorts of contracts within Yale University. We would do deliveries throughout their campus. And I happened to be in George H.W. Bush's house delivering pastries the same, the very same morning that he died. Now you're thinking his house, right? It used to be his house. It was now the Yale Economics Department. But in the time that George H.W. Bush lived in New Haven, he lived on 88 Hill House Avenue, the very same house that every Tuesday I would go and uh, deliver pastries in through the back door. So, And of course, I read the newspaper announcing his death in the building itself. So these are the things that smacked me in the face and said, wow, Mark, you should be talking to people about this. And I was familiar with your show and all these other great podcasts at that time. So that was one of the many coals uh, in the fire under my ass that led me to this. 
Wow. Yeah. You're on a journey. We all have a journey and a purpose, but you, unlike most people, you're listening. You're listening to yourself. You're listening to the synchronicities outside that we all have. We all have access to these divine powers. So it's great to hear. And man, yeah, you were in the, the den of evil and Nazism for all this time and didn't even know. Uh, yeah. Did, very I, did cool. I add something quickly, Miguel? Sure, sure. The, for historical context. Um, a big thing for me recently is the whole finding out that I'm the descendant of Susanna Martin, which is a woman hanged in Salem. And it helps people to understand that King Charles II was executed around the middle of that century. It's uh, so many things happening, like Mycosendagovius and stuff, like alchemists. It's such a strange period to understand that that's the period that we were coming over. The king was being executed. Uh, Mark talked about how this is where they fled. But that's the same period. About 40 years later, 1692, is when the Salem witch trials happened. And this is my Leo Moon. But it's not Nathan, it's Nathan Lee. And you will never get it. If, if anyone makes that mistake, it will be coming. It's always going to, you will always reckon with that. So, uh, yes, Nathan I Lee. immediately corrected myself. Because I know, of brother. My Leo Moon and your Capricorn, we are a great combo. I already told Miguel, dude, I so much respect for you. Um, I want to say, too, that Massachusetts got the same thing as Connecticut. I just learned that we were named, I should have known this a billion years ago, but our education system. Uh, yeah, Massachusetts is where the name of the tribes on the eastern side were. And there was, I think, the Wampanoag on the left-hand side. And I think that Michael Wan would be awesome for breaking this down. I just want to add the mm. contextualization of the Salem yeah. 40 years after King Charles. That's how well, that's how close this history is. And the connections are, are, are there. We're going to get into it, uh, Nate, for sure. There's definitely uh, more than just that. So if you'll allow me, I can start getting into the history of new haven a little bit more i i still have a couple of questions yeah ask here, away. if you don't mind yeah so the audience knows and uh, yeah you brought up geronimo and all three of us have as podcasters we've got the trick if a name comes up we're talking to the guests we pull up uh, the wikipedia tab and we read it and then we act like we're such experts you know <laughs> it's the whole the, the podcasting hack but Geronimo, tell the audience about why he's pertinent in all of this. So I could never do this justice, this answer justice, because Geronimo, the weight of his, um, the impression that he left on the American consciousness is huge. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for us to remember that at this point in time, but at the time when Skull and Bones was founded, the West was not settled and the Native Americans were very much a, uh, a problem in the eyes of certain factions of the government. And Geronimo not only represented uh, the rebellious spirit of the Native Americans, uh, he also represented the shamanistic powers that the Native Americans were clearly tapped into. Uh, one legend that really sticks with Geronimo is the fact that he was bulletproof. They could never shoot him. There's even a story where a, a, a bullet pierced his jacket or, or his clothing and went through his back and there was no wound, right? So wow. there's supernatural powers with this Geronimo. And, and you see in our culture, this idea of jumping associated with Geronimo, like leaping into a pool people kids will scream geronimo well that comes from the u.s army parachuting 
And they would give their paratroopers courage. They would say, you know, you can do it. Scream Geronimo when you jump. Scream his name. Scream it. And the reason why they told them this is because it's a mantra. Geronimo is a powerful man, a warrior who never surrendered, uh, or I'm sorry, was never killed in battle, but did surrender uh, and, and died peacefully in captivity, unfortunately. But he didn't die in battle. And... I think that was a sore spot in the eyes of the uh, colonists and the, you know, the the people founding the West, the cowboys, right? They couldn't kill Geronimo and um, they robbed his grave. Prescott Bush, grandfather of George W. Bush, robbed Geronimo's grave in the early 1900s. And uh, yeah, there, there are many legends surrounding Geronimo's death. Some people say he's buried in florida some people say uh you know he never even you know died in captivity there's a lot of legend and lore about geronimo but one thing that really stood out to me is when you look at the proper grave of geronimo in oklahoma where he's said to have died they've paved it over with concrete and built a stone monument on top of it with a headless bald eagle now, when you consider that Prescott Bush took the skull and the femur bones of Geronimo from his grave and brought them to the tomb on High Street, it's like, why would they put a headless bald eagle on top of his grave? Now, it could be some vandals that came in and knocked the eagle's head off, but uh, to my knowledge, they built it this way. And yeah, you know, Geronimo serves as uh, an icon for the Native Americans, and, and I think Skull and Bones and Yale and Harvard and the groups that they initiated that followed in their wake, groups like the National Geographic Society and the Smithsonian Society and all of these art museums, many of which are a part of Yale University's art collection and Harvard's art collection or the Peabody Museum and places like this, they've taken all these artifacts and used them to smuggle away the true history of the Native Americans by obscuring them, right? So we have in Geronimo, in my opinion, uh, a very epic symbol um, for the conquering and the decapitation of the inheritance of this land. And that's escaping your question a little bit. But yeah, Geronimo is, is certainly a, a legend and deserves to be respected even in, in posthumously you know and and the fact that his grave has been desecrated is not just morally wrong but it's a great crime within the culture of the native americans and and that too needs to be reconciled and now we have this thing called the indian repatriation act that was uh passed somewhat recently so there is hope that one day these relics and uh skulls will be taken out of the art collections underneath Yale's streets and uh, brought back to the where they belong. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. All right. Well, why don't we get into, uh, yeah, let's talk about Yale. And uh, I'm sure you agree, too, that it's fascinating because the more, obviously, the the conventional narrative of history is never right. It's just shit they gave us in high school and we pair it away in our family dinner table simply because it's easy and then we can go about our lives. But 
the more you uncover, the darker it is, even though it still leads to the same tropes of greed, money, power, uh, magic, all that stuff. So um, that's what I tell people. It's just it's an endless labyrinth. And that's that's it's the journey that matters. It's how you grow into the journey and how you become a better, more conscious person. Because, again, learning about this. You learn more about the Native Americans, the exploitation of people in the 19th century, all the wonderful uh, sacred and magical places that this country has that we st- most people still don't know about it. And what is your heritage, Mark? That's a great question. So my last name, uh, Steve's, is a mistranslation as many European to American names you know, they come from uh, Euro names. So my last name used to be Steef, spelled like S-T-E-I-F. And uh, yeah, I can trace my lineage back to this one family that migrated from Germany on my father's side, of course, from Germany to Pennsylvania. And then for religious reasons, they were sent to uh, New Brunswick, Canada, and they lived mm-hmm. where the Acadians were after the Acadians were uh, kicked out. Uh, and then on my mother's side, I have Acadian uh, roots. So my family on my mother's side comes from some of these Acadians that were kicked out of uh, that part of Canada and, and settled in Maine and, and places that became like the border between Maine and Canada. So I do have sort of strange geon- genealogy. I'm very tall. Uh, so that might mean I'm a Nephilim, but I haven't done any research further than that. But I, yeah, it is cool to to see where we uh, fit in. And, you know, Michael Wan, Nathan, Nathan Lee mentioned him earlier. He was a huge inspiration for me um, looking into all this stuff. And that's where he started, too. He found a geneal- genealogical relation between himself and someone who settled in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania and so am I, you know, I think there's this sort of magnetic thing that happens uh, when we go and look up into our genealogy and we can even maybe connect with those who were connected to our ancestors, right? In this sort of decentralized way. Very cool. Nate, any questions or comments before we really delve into Yale? No doubt. And uh, this is excellent. Um, a few things like I'm just loving the like excellent. This is good. Um, Nez Pierce comes up, Chief Joseph in Twin Peaks. That's a huge part of the whole thing. 1872 and 1873 was a lot of the, um, I think it was a Buffalo kill-off around that time period. And Chief Joseph in the Twin Peaks fictionalized story is from 1970, excuse me, 1879. Um, So just more historical context to add in there. Um, One thing I'll notice just as a pop culture thing, because Japan has no allegiances to our, right? I mean, well, maybe not as heavy anyways. Uh, to our story making, they have two characters in the Power Rangers, and this is what I wanted to tell you. This is the this is the thing that I noticed. Notice how the two enemies they have are Bulk and Skull, Skull and Bones, or Club backwards is Bulk, so the Skull Club, right? So I just wanted to add that. Mm. I think you and I have this. I have family lore of New Brunswick too. That's why I was like getting all jazzed up. I'm like. You know, I mean, my name's literally when you rearrange NFLM, that's Nephilim too. I'm Joe Rogan height though, so I'm only 5'8". <laughs> <laughs> I think that might have been from the blood swapping or something. Anyways, we'll get another time. That's what I wanted to add was the Balkan skull thing. And to think about always 
we are we are Western people talking. It's so important to keep in mind like Vedic, Chinese, Greek at the same time as you know Hebraic and Japanese, right? These are that that really fleshes it out. Just like we don't think about Native American. So mm. just just something that I hope that adds a little bit of context. Yeah, yeah, and this story really centers around the upheaval of the native consciousness and it's stripping from this East Coast. I mean, it, it still has its roots in some parts of the United States and Canada and, and Mexico, but as far as New England goes, I mean, you're talking about 400 years of separation. I mean, other than the Mohegan Sun casinos, pretty much everybody's been... Uh, kicked out. I went to the Skyliko Nation in the northwest corner of my state, and they couldn't even answer the door. They didn't want to talk to me. I mean, there's nobody there. If it was, you know, it, it was sad. And I, I've never met anybody from there, uh, but uh, it doesn't feel like they're welcome in this state. And I think that goes exactly back to the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the New Haven Colony and the Connecticut Colony. And one of the other little tidbits that really sent me on this journey was Peter Lavenda mentioning in an interview that uh, one of the first governors of Connecticut was an alchemist. And I thought, wow, that's really strange. And when I went and looked it up, I couldn't find anything because, of course, I looked at the state of Connecticut's governors and not the colony of Connecticut's governors. But just to get people in the right frame of reference, uh, the Pilgrims reached Cape Cod and started the Plymouth Colony in 1620. And our story in New Haven happens a little later. New Haven's colony was founded in 1638, and it was founded by three men primarily, the most notable of the, the people who founded it were Theophilus Eaton, John Davenport, and John Brockett. And at this time, their colony was the wealthiest colony in the New World. So the New Haven colony has always been focused on the elite. Um, but John Brockett is the lesser known of these men, and he's probably one of the more important. Theophilus Eaton, of course, was the brother of the first schoolmaster at Harvard. So we see right away uh, a connection to the Ivy League uh, before it was the Ivy League. And then John Davenport is a man who was educated at Oxford University. So uh, already the intelligentsia in New Haven uh, has arrived. And I can share my screen now and show you guys a little bit of my slides and people who are curious who are listening uh we have uh, much in store for this project so you'll be able to see these slides at some point in the future but uh but yeah this is the green that i started this journey on i used to sit right around there if you can see my cursor and right around there behind the churches is where i met amos uh, the first county courthouse of the colony of Connecticut and New Haven was right here, uh, where this sort of brown spot is. They've planted some new growth trees since, but you can see, uh, <laughs> we'll get to this later on a little bit in our presentation, but you can kind of see something being hinted at with the pathways of this park here. What do you, what do you guys yeah. think? <laughs> yeah. What could that be? Oh my God. It's a pentagram. <laughs> right. So, 
John Brockett was the surveyor who laid out the New Haven Green, and uh, underneath the New Haven Green, there's about 6,000 corpses buried. Uh, so this is known as the 6, old burying 000. ground. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so it was a um, cemetery? Yeah, in the, in the early days of the, the colony, the New Haven Green was uh, where the three churches were. Uh, there hadn't always been three churches, but for most of the time, there were many churches that sort of revolved through the history of the colony. You know, one would usurp the other. So naturally, yeah, all of the burials were sort of centered in this area and everything outside of this nine square grid that New Haven was laid into was pretty much wilderness and, and a few farms, but mostly wilderness. At this time, New Haven was chosen uh, because it was a very deep port. Uh, the water is really deep uh, right up to the shore here. So it made for a really great place to harbor ships. And unfortunately, New Amsterdam, which became New York City and, and Boston, were much, much more successful than New Haven uh, in the shipping and trading game. So New Haven really never took off. It was actually a struggle to get a uh, the college Yale built there at first, but that's a little bit fast forwarding. So the New Haven colony, like I said, was surveyed by John Brockett. He was born in England and educated at Cambridge, and he is a descendant of a knighted man, a man who was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. Uh, he was a, a dispute settler between the Indians and the government, uh, and he was also a surgeon, which I think is very, very interesting considering what New Haven has become uh, with their Yale Medical School. Harvard also has a very um, big medical program. But the surgeons, people don't think about surgeons in the 17th century. And uh, they were really very similar to what we would call a shaman in the Native American culture. Uh, they did all sorts of healing. It wasn't what we would see surgeons as today with a knife and a scalpel. Yes, they did that. and They had saws and they would cut your leg off if they needed to. But uh, no, they, they did homeopathy and they were interested in, in curing smallpox, which, you know, to me, as a paranoid conspiracy theorist, when I hear that there were surgeons who were capable of possibly curing smallpox, uh, it doesn't seem to add a lot of benefit of the doubt when we're told that smallpox killed the Indians by accident, right? This mm -hmm. seems to lend to that. But that's outside of what I've researched, just a suspicion at this point in time. So the New Haven Green uh, and the Nine Square Arrangement, people have interpreted as being laid out in this sort of geometrical arrangement. Like I said, there's a many, many bodies buried underneath uh, the grounds here. So that doesn't really settle us much. But uh, when you look at where the ninth square is and all these other numbers I put in there, um, when you look at New Haven today, the only district that's remembered by this terminology is the ninth square. And it's not in a numerical order. You see New Haven was laid out in the magnetic north which is not geographical north. So today we look at this map and we see it oriented with the west side of the map being on the top side of the map rather than the north side. 
So this ninth square is right here. So when I put the other numbers next to it, you have the numeral 15, just like you would when you put these numbers in a magic square. And the truth is you can arrange these numbers in any order and it will always equal 15, which one plus five equals six, six being the sixth planet Saturn. And the Saturnian symbolism just grows from there. Uh, but you can see laid into the foundation of New Haven, this Saturnian symbolism. I don't think it was a coincidence that uh, they chose to build the New Haven green or town plot in a spot that Native Americans had already been burying their dead. This was a tradition in England to build a church on top of a prior sacred place, and they followed suit. It's also customary to plot your towns in the nine square in England. So it's not totally out of the ordinary, but having can a I, public... Can I add something just before we move yeah. on too far from that? Because this is essential. Um, this is um, called involution energy. One of the reasons that the bones are relevant is because they contain a particular crystalline, you know, and they draw magnetic force down. These guys are using downward spiraling energy, bringing it into the... They're trying to magnetize their power to the earth. And if you look at where the sun, just imagine where that sun's going to hit. It's going to hit that nine and go all the way around uh, and form a particular circular pattern. So that would be further to look into. I was just wondering if at some point we're going to touch on the symbolism of the skull and the legs, because I can do that. But um, the skull and the um, the leg, yeah, I know. It's not a video. Leg bones, and uh, especially because you got Bill Hicks pulling Keenan's leg and stuff like that on the tool thing, and that's Angel or Ankel. And I'm wondering if we're going to touch onto that kind of symbolism. You know, did they have Geronimo's legs up above his head at the end? Kind of question. So I wanted to mm. add that about the Saturnian thing because you're nailing it, dude. And also, 1584 is John D. Speaking of Queen Elizabeth, so that 84 keeps kind of doing a thing too but i mm. got this on lockdown man your cat that's this is great i'm loving this i just want to thank say I'm you very, it's super enjoyable thank you yeah and and that um examination into the symbolism of the the skull i've only briefly gotten into that but maybe we'll get to something that'll satisfy your your curiosity nate hold on there are motorcycles passing miguel so i'm gonna mute myself every now and then but uh no okay. i understand Okay, so with this New Haven nine square grid, as I mentioned, you have the the bodies buried in that center portion. And at some point, this became a problem. Uh, animals were known to dig up the bones. Uh, you had like pet dogs coming in the park and pulling up skeletons. So at some point, they decided to build the Grove Street Cemetery. And this was the first organized cemetery in the history of the United States. It was the first of its kind. Uh, and as you can see in this picture here, it has this very interesting Egyptian arcway leading you into the uh, Park of the Dead or the Garden of the Dead, as they called it. And it says on the top, the dead shall be raised. And it also has an Egyptian sun uh, disc with wings on either side and what looks like serpents. So we have this uh, symbolism at play with their new cemetery, the first cemetery in the history of the United States of this kind. And many, many famous people are buried here. Uh, Webster, who wrote the dictionary, has an obelisk uh, 
commemorating his gravesite here uh, and many other really interesting people. Um, and I found that the architects who were a part of this construction, you see them turn up, you know, over and over and over again in other strange buildings. Uh, and I've called them like the master builders of New Haven. You have Henry Austin, Alexander Jackson Davis, and Ithiel Town. And they have built several different unique buildings in New Haven, but also across the country. We have here uh, the United States Federal Hall in New York City, uh, built by Alexander Jackson Davis. And uh, of course, the Skull and Bones Tomb, its various features down here uh, were built by Henry Austin. He also built that cemetery gate that we just saw. And I believe him and Ithil Town are both buried in that uh, cemetery. So, yeah, it's very interesting when you look at the stone and how the stone has been um, imbued with this energy and carried through these different buildings that still hold significance today. That center picture that I showed you before, that's the Wadsworth Athenium, and that has thousands of Bronze Age, Egyptian Age artifacts in it, many Native American artifacts, and it was funded primarily by the Rockefellers, um, also Samuel Colt, J.P. Morgan, um, and the Wadsworths as well are all very prominent families on the East Coast. And right in front of this museum, the Wadsworth Athenium, is Nathan Hale in statue, right? Nathan Hale is America's first spy. And, uh, and Nathan Hale has a statue not just at this museum, but in Yale's campus and Hartford, the capital. Uh, Nathan Hale was America's... Uh, First volunteer spy, right? George Washington asked for volunteers to go on this espionage mission. And unfortunately, Nathan Hale was the only volunteer, a very brave soul. And he died almost immediately. He was captured and, and hung. And um, what's interesting about the quote that we remember him for, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country it's said that it was possibly taken from Cato, which was a Stoic poem at the time that was very popular, and it had to do with the tyranny of Julius Caesar. And the actual line from this play is, How beautiful is death when earned by virtue? Who would not be that youth? What pity is it that we can die but once to serve our country? So you see this like, really interesting um, death symbolism, resurrection, the country, nationalism. It's all centered in this place, New Haven, Yale. I mentioned the surgeon. Uh, and of course, I haven't even touched on the whole Puritan and Calvinist influence that is at play right down to the naming of New Haven. I mean, New Haven is uh, could be interpreted as New Heaven, right? So we have this New Heaven. Before we um, move on Jerusalem. from Nathan Hale, just, just <laughs> before ahead. we move on from Nathan Hale, he was hanged, like Susanna Martin, on my birthday. So Nathan Hale, which kind of looks like Nathan Lee-ish, has September 22nd for his death day. 
Right. And again, like, you know, that's my birthday. And not only that, but like, you know what? We'll just say the rest of it. this. This goes into a chain of connections, which gets absurd. But uh, the only person in Salem to be killed, uh, the only man was killed on my birthday as well. So we're absolutely during this time of the American Pluto return as this country is being not revolved. We're not going to a revolution. We're going into an evolution. I want to just make sure that's clear. This is the conversation that's happening for these times. This thing, unlike um, bio things, should go viral. And uh, that's a conversation for another time. Anyways, thank you. I just want to add that he was hanged on September 22nd. So well, this and, is, and yeah. Nathan Lee, I got to say, you're like a high speed connection maker. And like, it's so much <laughs> like so slow for me. So like, I yeah. love and appreciate everything you just said, but it's going to take me a week to fully integrate that into this. So I, I, I do want to hear your comments, but I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to fully respond to them. Uh, until I have some time to it's all gravy, really... maybe it's for the audience just as much too. Some, right. someone out there well, might get sparked by that. And that's the beauty of what we're doing. And I got to thank you again, Miguel, for having me here uh, and sharing this with your audience, because I think the more awareness we have on these subjects, the easier it is for those looking to find these little kernels of truth that have been buried, uh, you know, and, that's really what we're doing here. I mean, like I said, I've been learning about this stuff for eight years. I found this book in front of me, uh, fleshing out skull and bones in a library after Amos had thoroughly scared and shocked me with the Geronimo story. And I was again, shocked to be like, wow, he was right. He was not wrong. And then, you know, however many years later, I actually have interviewed the author of this book, uh, Chris Milligan, Unfortunately, Mr. Sutton, who really sort of trailblazed this research with his book, America's Secret, Secret Establishment, um, he's unfortunately no longer with us. But Chris Milligan is. And uh, that was surreal to be able to interview him. But I didn't quite have this project in mind when I started the, podge- the podcast. So uh, I'll have to get Chris back on. But yeah, when it comes to skull and bones they're a very interesting organization and the reason i went so far as i did to look at new haven's history is because i think it's essential to understand the foundation or the nest that an egg like skull and bones could be laid in and people often forget that at this time in the country 1832 when skull and bones was founded the freemasons were enemy number one they were being used as the political um, herring and pu- punching bags, but they were also uh, very suspicious and probably deserved all that, uh, you know, flack that they got. But it caused many of these groups to want to go underground even further while others decided to go completely public. So we have this sort of strange time in America where many of the secret societies are like, okay, well, we'll just become the Shriners or we'll just become, you know, a debate club or we'll just become. So this is, this is the transition, but then others say, okay, well, we're just going to recruit from those groups and be very secret. So what we have with skull and bones is actually what seems to be an inner group inside of Phi Beta Kappa which Phi Beta Kappa comes from the College of William and Mary, right? This uh, very, very English 
college comparatively. You know, Harvard and, and Yale had a sense of independence. They felt like they were a new country, you know, because of this Puritan um, ideology that was right at the heart of the founding of Harvard and Yale. And that gave them a sense of independence. And I guess my argument is that Skull and Bones was created um, post the, the making of these schools to sort of rein in the free thought and the education. I think Skull and Bones is like a splinter cell of another completely foreign organization that has sort of parasitically taken over Yale. And you see this happening uh, since 1832. Um, all of the finances were very quickly cornered. They took control of the school almost immediately using a secondary school called the Sheffield Scientific School. And they used their power over the Sheffield Scientific School to basically subsume all of Yale. And it was very quickly that the student body of Yale became very nervous. In 1876, you see this group called the Order of the File and Claw, and they completely uh, are just a response to Skull and Bones. They, they broke in to Skull and Bones' tomb, and they found a lot of strange stuff. They found German paintings on the wall. They found Whoa. black velvet uh, decorating the whole of the interior. They found uh, skulls, of course, and they found all sorts of things that basically implicated Skull and Bones in exactly what they thought, uh, which was taking control over Yale University through the finances, through the uh, blackmailing of certain key individuals, and they released it in the newspaper. Well, sometime after that, Skull and Bones and Henry Austin, this guy I showed you earlier who built the cemetery, they renovated Skull and Bones. They made it twice the size, and they took the art museum that was in a different location, and they moved it. They extended a, a bridge across the street, and now Skull and Bones' tomb is almost obscured from the public. It exists on a one-way street, and you know the other one-way street, has all this stuff going on. And because of the placement of this bridge that connects two art museums, you don't even notice the tomb anymore. So I think the, the, the clandestine nature of these groups has always been uh, present. You know, this isn't just because of the modern mass media and journalism that they're practicing in secrecy. They've been practicing this sort of secrecy for many years and in many different ways. I mean, there's even underground tunnels uh, underneath the university. Naturally, most universities back then built these underground tunnels because they didn't have the same types of snow management as we do now. But still, now that they're not using them for avoiding snowstorms, what are they using them for, right? Wow, that's amazing research. So to... Um... I guess to wit, if you would, Skull and Bones is a secret society as, uh, well, as uh, O'Brien tells Winston in 1984, power for the sake of power. And they probably lean on dark magic for their 
uh, for their goals. Um, and uh, you would say they probably lean towards war, what more black Saturn power energy or what kind of vibe? I have my ideas, but I wanted to, to hear yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly seems like they're invoking Saturnian energy. Um, I showed you earlier the, the grid of the, of the city, but it goes even deeper. I've found newspaper articles that say when a bonesman dies, he's left a sickle and a shaft of wheat on his grave. I mean, that couldn't be more mm -hmm. obvious, right? Not to mention the each graduating alumni of Skull and Bones is gifted a very ornate grandfather clock, right? Saturn, time, right? This whole thing. So, and... Also, the clock, it's like clocks are very central to Connecticut's history. We have a, a one town in Connecticut that basically uh, was like a clock monopoly town. This, this happened a lot in the early days of the colonies where one town would become very famous for a certain product, right? We have Derby, Connecticut, and you might have heard of Derby hats before. Well, that's because they were all made in Danbury and sold in Derby. So we have all sorts of little things like that from early American history. Um, but yeah, Skull and Bones, their fascination with death. Uh, a lot of times we hear this 322 number connected Demosthenes, right? This mm -hmm. Greek. And that, I think, harkens back to the fact that these debating societies, they've proved that Rhetoric wins over truth. Rhetoric wins over logic, right? This slick tongue, this fast-talking Yankee devil trickster, right? That's <laughs> that's where this idea comes from, and we're in New England. I mean, this is this is the concept of uh, of you know, I can persuade you uh, that the truth is what I tell you it is, and you'll never know what the actual truth is. This is the Saturnian logic. So I think Skull and Bones is very much playing with this they talk about um you know this ritual where um when you're initiated which their initiation takes place on may 15th it's called tap day and then after that they go through several different uh events but people have reported hearing on campus people screaming after the bonesmen get initiated the hangman equals death the devil equals death. Death equals death. This is one of their mantras that they scream at the new guys to shock them into, uh, you know, obedient uh, fashion. And it's really no different than what we see the Marines doing to recruits and any other uh, military organization. It's no surprise that the founder of Skull and Bones, William Huntington Russell, went on to become the first uh, National Guardsmen in Connecticut. They created the Connecticut National Guard and he was sort of like their leader. Uh, so it's always been a very military, militant thing, uh, not to mention the apocalyptic Christianity uh, and the gnosis of the Templars, which is a whole nother angle to this that uh, I think is really important, especially when you consider the fact that Right, we're told the, the Templars are the result of Justinian shutting down the mystery schools, right? And 500 years later, these Templars come about. And then right. sometime after that, the Templars have to go underground. And then the Rosicrucians come out. And then the Freemasons. And then sometime 
we have the skull and bones, right? So I think they're, they're all sort of connected under this Gnostic idea of the Demiurge and connecting with the God above God, as we talk about here on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. So these folks, I think they are trying to uh, subvert the public I think they're trying to be on the right side of God for the new apocalypse. Hmm. And I think they're using this sort of Calvinist idea of, well, we can either get on God's good side by being good little angels, or we can get on God's good side by being wicked devils and scaring everyone else into being good little angels. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of a... Protestant occultism, from what I hear about Skull and Bones. Uh, Awesome. Yeah, we are at the end. It's really been a great conversation, and we've covered a lot of ground. We certainly look forward to more of your research. Makes sense to me. So, uh, yeah, uh, Oracle of Occult Fan, thanks for being the wingman or the red dragon man for this show. Thank you. And uh, Mark, uh, really enjoyed it. Where can people find out more about thee and thy Excalibur? Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, my family thinks I'm crazy.com is a place to find all of it. You can find my show and all the other shows I do. And then altmediaunited.com, the podcast cooperative that Miguel Connor and Aeon Byte is a part of. That is also my website and my project. And uh, if you have a podcast and you're listening, to this hit me up you could be a part of it too it's uh welcome we all all of a podcast or put brilliant stuff out there so hit me up yeah yeah i would definitely join uh, definitely subscribe to his podcast definitely join because just because it's a golden age of podcasting doesn't mean that the censoring pen of the archons is coming either it's gonna come it might be five years might be 10 years it might be tomorrow so yeah Keep your stuff safe. Don't uh, rely on corporations like Apple or Spotify or even your own website because that could be taken away like that. So, yeah, spread spread that gold. Like, you know, the research people spread all this stuff and we keep panning for this gold and putting it out there. I make it into alchemical gold. But I am now getting into a tangent. Well, Mark, this has been a really fun conversation. We look forward to whether I'm with you or you're back with me. This is how it works. And thanks for coming on AM Byte. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And there you have it. Mark exposing both the dark and light of American origins and current power centers. In our second part, Mark will share the skull and bones rituals and the concept of portals. We'll talk about King Arthur and some Welsh mysticism. Mark will tackle the topics of colonial opium trade and slavery and how they're still going on today in some way or another. We'll also talk about John the Baptist and the Johannine tradition, as well as transhumanism and the god Mithras and much more. So please become a member for the full conspiracy. It's only $6.99 for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge at Patreon. For AB Prime members and higher level patrons, you'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord. If you find value in this content, please support this Red Pill Cafeteria. 
Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the U.S. Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip via Stripe. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. I am also on Rockfin or Odyssey if crypto is your bag. If you need help with all these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. <laughs> <laughs>